on the day of redemption when sin and death and hell are forever vanquished in his conquering kingdom. Don't you look forward to that day? When we sing hymns like we did earlier, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, doesn't that invoke some type of excitement from you that one day we're going to be with him and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. We're going to be with the Lord and faith will become sight. You're listening to I Am, a sermon series at Shoreline Church. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. John chapter 9 is where we're going to be. This week I read an article about something called BLW. I'll put a picture on the screen. A BLW is a blind laser weapon. It's designed to blind soldiers on the field of battle. Now, most countries adhere to international law to minimize the power of lasers. But China, uh, instead of limiting their power uh, of these weapons, they took full advantage of this potential and they actually developed uh, the battery-powered, it's called the ZM87. Doesn't that look like something that you would uh, see in the movie Men in Black? It's one of those kind of sci-fi weapons. And that's called the uh, portable laser disturber. And what it does is uh, they would shoot that at you and it'll, it'll temporarily injure your eyes or dizzy you to the point where you begin shooting back. And they actually had a tank right in, in, in within a, a very close range. And once someone was shot with one of those lasers, they were unable to see. I'm going to switch to this. Uh, they were unable to see. And so by blinding the enemy, the idea was to render them unable to fight. And this is, what, um, this is what they said, if we, can, if we can render our enemy blind, they're unable to truly engage. And I thought, you know, that is an accurate picture of even our enemy, Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. So it's not just that an unbeliever needs more information, needs more logic, needs more reason. Uh, to or proof or emotion they don't need that they need to be granted sight they are blind and so as we've been seeing in our studies in the gospel of john john spoke a lot about light and darkness john chapter one he calls jesus the light of men that shines in the darkness john chapter three he says this is the judgment light has come into the world that men love the darkness rather than the light john chapter eight Uh, At the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 12, Jesus proclaimed, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so now in John chapter 9, as Jesus and his disciples encounter a man born blind, he proclaims, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then the light of the world proceeds to give sight to a man who has lived, just think about this, in total darkness his entire life life. Uh, But by way of contrast, at the end of the chapter, the proud Pharisees who thought they could see are still left in spiritual darkness. And so here's our outline today. If you're taking notes or following along the Bible app, uh, we are going to look at verses 1 through 12 and see literal blind eyes opened. We're going to see in verses 13 through 23, open eyes and blind hearts. Then we're going to see one of the funniest sections in the Bible, 
we're going to see the blind leading the blind. So the blind man is going to take the Pharisees on kind of a, a, a theological uh, discourse, pretty funny, verses 24 through 34. And then at the end, Jesus doesn't leave him in that condition. He doesn't leave him with working eyes and a blind heart. He opens then his blind heart. And I think it's really important that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that you come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus today. So that's where we're going today in our text. And we're going to study all of John chapter 9. And we're going to find out that even if you have perfect 2020 vision today, we all have blind spots. And we're going to realize that our spiritual understanding is one big blind spot. So uh, let's look at the first verse and this idea of blind eyes that are open. Verse 1 says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. As Jesus passed by. And what had just happened in John chapter 8 was that Jesus had just passed by some people that wanted to kill him. Uh, they were taking up stones to stone him and kill him. And he just kind of walks through them uh, and directly from verse uh, 59 to uh, John chapter 9 verse 1, kind of ignoring the chapter distinctions, he passes by them and then he passes right by this blind man. I love the calm and cool demeanor of Jesus, even in the, the face of death. Don't you love that? Uh, just one verse ago, men are trying to kill him, and here he stops to help someone. One person said, Jesus was often reviled, but never ruffled. I like that. Um, Spurgeon said this, one of the things worthy to be noticed in our Lord's character is his wonderful quiet of spirit, especially his marvelous calmness in the presence of those who misjudged and insulted and slandered him. I love that. So he takes the time to bend down and help this man. Verse 2, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, so as Jesus and his disciples are walking through the streets of Jerusalem, just after the Feast of Tabernacles, they see a blind man, and what is he doing? What posture is he in? We don't need to pull the audience. He's probably sitting on the ground, and he's begging. He's asking for money. Uh, we learn here, because of the disciples, that he was born blind. He never possessed the ability to see, even from a child. And notice what the disciples asked. They said, hey, Rabbi, Jesus, who, who sinned? Was it him, or was it his parents? that caused him to be born blind. Um, the reason that they ask this question uh, is kind of telling. So if you're taking note, there was a belief in Israel at that time that if you had a disability of any sort, uh, maybe a weird birthmark, maybe a, uh, some type of physical infirmity, uh, but especially if you were born with it, they believed that that would have been the direct result of sin. Either the parents were sinning and that's why the baby was born that way? Or the baby, and I don't know how this works, the baby was sinful in the womb and that's what caused the baby to be born uh, with this debilitation. There's a rabbi by the name of Ami and here's what he said. This is not a scripture verse, this is, this is false, but this is what this rabbi said. He said, there's no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. So their idea was that Someone suffering, the logical assertion is someone did it, someone sinned. Uh, and you know what, this is the philosophy of the three friends of Job. And I say friends with a kind of a quote, the three friends of Job. You know, our kids today in our um, 
Compass and Junior Compass are learning about Job, and Job had three friends. Uh, they kind of remind me of three characters from uh, yesteryear. I don't know if you know these guys, the three stooges. His friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Remember the counsel that they gave Job? Remember their counsel? Their counsel, uh, they're waxing eloquent for multiple chapters about how Job must have done something. You did something to deserve the death of all of your children and, and all of your property being lost. You did something. Certainly someone in Christianity right now is saying, someone in, in Mexico Beach sinned. And, and that's why God is incurring this judgment on them. He's, he's out for one specific person in that community. Okay, that's very stooge-like counsel. Now, before you and I get judgy, uh, we too can fall prey to asking the same question. And here's how we do it. We personalize it. And here's what we do. We say, okay, God, I'm going through a trial. This is not fun. What did I do wrong to deserve this. I'm sure I did something, Lord, to deserve this punishment. Uh, this week on Wednesday, I want you guys to look on Facebook. We're going to do a special Facebook Live uh, where we talk about, um, from the port, this idea, why do bad things happen to good people? And I think you'll be surprised how we define bad and how we define good people. And so many parents have asked this same question. A parent who has a child born with a disability. The parent says, okay, well, well who sinned? Um, this kind of goes along, this mind, mindset goes along with um, this uh, uh, karma, this modern day philosophy of what goes around comes around, or the yin yang, kind of this uh, Taoism, uh, or, or the, the, the idea in Islam of God willed it uh, to happen. And so uh, the disciples want an answer to their theological query, but all the while, the man just needed compassion. Guys, sometimes we can do this. We are so worried about the theological controversy that we don't see the person right in front of us who has great need. And may we not look at the controversy. May we look at the condition of the person's soul. Uh, but what does Jesus say to them? Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sin. But, in the NIV it says, This happens so the work of God may be displayed in him. The New King James, from which we're reading, says the works of God should be revealed in him. And then he says this. It's either translated in verse 4, I or we. But either way, we must, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What is the truth of this man's predicament according to Jesus? Well, he says, neither this man nor his parents sin. This happened in his life, so that God's work may be revealed in him. Now, hopefully, theologically, some of you were thinking, well, wait, suffering is a result of sin, but not a particular sin necessarily, uh, but original sin, okay? So, and you're absolutely correct. Sin leads to suffering, and ultimate suffering is separation from God, and ultimate sin happened in the garden. Uh, and so we endure lies and malicious gossip and jealousy and wrath and selfishness and greed and covetousness and perversion and disease and disasters and death, not just because we necessarily did something wrong, but because sin entered the world and death entered through sin. And we need to be careful we don't look at someone in a bad plight and say, well, they must have done something to make God mad at them. Uh, we had our son Aiden born premature. And I remember at church where I attended as a youth pastor, someone came up to me and said, wow, your son was born premature. What kind of sin are you and your wife 
uh, committing to lead to that. And that, that was very burdensome for me to hear. And as a pastor, I punched him in Jesus' name in my head, um, but <laughs> didn't actually. John Calvin says this, if my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God. Uh, but if God chastises me with a heavier stroke, I wink at my sins. But in considering punishments, every man ought to begin with himself and to spare himself as little as any other person. Wherefore, if we wish to be candid judges in this matter, let us learn to be quick in discerning our own evils rather than those of others. Now, I do need to concede one point here. Listen, sometimes we will suffer because of our sin. Okay, that is a thing. Sometimes our children may suffer because of our sin. Some children are born with disabilities because the parents were sinning. Uh, in, in a certain situation, the, the child may have been conceived because of a sinful relationship, and now he, he or she has to face emotional or familial trauma because they're not going to live together and be married. They're going to just separate, and now the child has trauma. That, that could be a thing. Or a pregnant mom may be drinking alcohol or using drugs, and the child thus will suffer physical deformities because the mom is using while she's pregnant, okay? But the obvious question that I was thinking this week is, how would this man cause his own blindness by his own sin? That would mean he's sinning in the womb. I mean, can you imagine how many times he sat begging and with his pronounced sense of hearing being heightened, uh, could hear people as they walked by him asking this question, oh, look guys, there's that man. He, he was born that way. He must have sinned before he was born. You can almost hear the blind beggar yelling out, saying, I didn't mean to. Okay, I may have kicked mom one too many times in the womb, but I didn't mean to. Uh, don't you see him, church, as like a young boy, um, prevented from going outside by his mom because of the danger that he could cause to himself or be hurt by others? Don't, don't you hear the judgment and slander from people that didn't just accuse him, but then begin to accuse his parents. Always whispering, always wondering, what secret sin was committed that caused this heartache in their family? And here he was, a fixture in the community. He was a young boy, begging, then a young man, eventually a grown man, stuck in his blindness, reduced to begging, while relying on others to give him money so he could sustain his meager existence. And yet as Jesus is about to be stoned, <clears throat> He doesn't say, let me get out of town and preserve myself. He stops and changes this man's entire life. More than any other miracle, if you're taking note, Jesus seemed to love to open the eyes of blind people. He seems to produce or perform that miracle more than any others. In Isaiah 35.5, we um, see Isaiah predicting this would be true of Messiah. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Jesus ultimately came to restore the sight of human beings who had become blinded to the things of God spiritually, and that was illustrated in his many uh, physical healings of people with physical blindness. And what's about to happen in our chapter is the sixth miracle Jesus performs. Remember, there's seven signs on the screen. Uh, these are some of the things we're seeing in the Gospel of John. You can take a picture of that if you want. Uh, but we already saw Jesus changing water into wine at Cana in Galilee in John chapter 2. We saw the healing of the royal official's son from afar who lived in Capernaum in John chapter 4. We saw Jesus healing the paralytic uh, at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. 
Then he fed the 5,000 men, so there were thousands and thousands more in John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus did a private miracle to his disciples by walking on water in John chapter 6 as well. And then here today, we're looking at the healing of the man blind from birth. And then in a few um, weeks, we'll get to the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Now, Jesus is doing something very miraculous here because this man didn't have sight and then lose it. He never had sight. This is a very specific creative miracle. Um, to give sight back to a congenitally blind person, one, one um, surgeon said, he said, it's more the work of an educator than of a surgeon. It's not just the cornea that needs to be repaired. There's actually brain work that needs to be done. The brain has to understand the images that it's seen. And so Jesus isn't just kind of fixing his eyes. He's going to restore the man's brain as well and how he uh, you know, understands and interprets what he's seeing. It's the rewiring of the brain. And so that may be why there's a little bit of a process to this healing. Look at verse 6. When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus has this blind man go and wash of all places where? You guys help me out. Where is he washing? The pool of Siloam. It's all right. You can, you can contribute. Like You, you can get back uh, to your community. Just call it out. The pool of Siloam, which means it's translated sent. Isn't it interesting? Back in verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus is sent. We are sending Megan. You and I are sent ones. We'll get into John chapter 17 later. We are sent. And so Jesus is sent to bring sight to the blind. And here's how he did it. Apparently he spits on the ground, takes the clay, begins to roll it in to the clay with the saliva, and it becomes, it produces mud. And we'll see why that's a big deal later. But then Jesus takes the clay. Now, the blind guy didn't have any argument at this point because he didn't know what's happening. He hears the... Right? And he goes, well, that's weird. What's going on here? Right? I've, heard lo- I've had lots of people with their opinions on how to fix this, but I haven't heard anyone spit yet. Right? And then all of a sudden, he maybe hears the, the mixture in the clay, and all of a sudden, he feels the cool mud being rubbed on his eyes, and he's got to be thinking, this is definitely new. I've not had this as a prescription yet. And so Jesus wipes the mixture of dirt and saliva. It gets into his eyes. He's still blind. Jesus directs him, go to the pool of Siloam and wash there. Still blind at that point. This man would have known exactly how many steps it took to walk there. In fact, the pool of Siloam had been a very popular place in the last few days. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is just wrapped up, and every day the priest would scoop water out of the pool, and the people on the screen would recite all of Jerusalem, all of those who had come and made their pilgrimage would all quote Isaiah 12 3 they would say with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation we looked at that in John chapter 7 how Jesus said if anyone thirsts come to me and drink all of us are thirsty and this man may have walked by that pool that day and said yeah I'm still searching I'm still thirsty I've been scooping out of the pool of Judaism out of the pool of religion and it still hasn't satisfied it hasn't fixed my condition Doing something outwardly hasn't fixed the true inward problem. 
And maybe he's thinking, you know, I've tried every technique. This is just another rabbi. This is just another, uh, you know, prescription. Uh, why not slap some mud in my face? I mean, at this point, what do I have to lose? Everything religion has offered me has come up short. And so he goes and he washes. But notice that when he started walking back, that's when he was healed. He obeyed Jesus. He followed Jesus. And then he could see. I wonder if at that moment his eyes open, he washes the mud off, and he returns to his begging post, or, or maybe just stands there for a minute, taking it all in, wondering, is this, is this real? Could this be happening? You guys have seen some of the videos where people who have never heard, they get kind of a hearing aid, children who can hear their parents' voice for the first time. You see the video where I watched this week, it was really hard not to cry, and I'm a man, but I saw this little boy who could never see color. He was given, YouTube it later, he's given these glasses by his father that translate everything into color. And he just starts crying and bawling, puts his, his head in his dad's chest, and I'm kind of watching it, you know, my wife walks in the room like, are you cutting onions, honey? I don't know what's going on here. Oh, this is, it was rough. It's like, wow. I wonder if that's what he's experiencing. Is he realizing for the first time that he's actually healed. Well, it's about to get complicated because he's very well known in the community. Now he's a celebrity. Look at verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, yeah, this is him. Others said, yeah, he looks like him. <laughs> yeah, that's, that can't be the guy. And he said, no, I am he. Again, pointing this out, we're in the series. He said, I am I think that's kind of interesting in the, in the Greek. I am. I love this. And therefore they said to him, well, how were your eyes open? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. There's a different word there. He anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Notice they didn't say, wow, that's amazing. We're so proud of you. We're so thankful for you. Right, which that would have been a good thing, but they did say, where is he? And man, isn't it a beautiful thing when Christ has done something in your life, when he's transformed you and you have a testimony now. This is who I was, this is who I am now. The people want to see Jesus. I love that. They're not getting wrapped up in his past. They, just, they want to see Jesus. And by the way, that's when your testimony begins. It's not, well, this is how awful I was before Christ. No, your testimony begins at the cross and resurrection. And by faith, what Jesus has done for you, that's where your testimony begins. That's where true life is expressed. And so they want to know. And, and people want to know when you're suffering, is Jesus real? And they're watching. And so, guys, this one's different. Okay? Up until now, these are amazing miracles. This one's different. He's born with this condition. You can't fake this infirmity very long. Okay? Kids who pretend to be blind in third grade are going to try to make their friend, they're going to try to make them flinch, right? You've been in third grade, you know the drill. Right? Someone's pretty, oh, I can't see you. Then you go up and do the, well, I'm going to make him flinch. Right? You're going to call that kid out pretty quick. And so when something miraculous like this happens, we have three options that I'm aware of. On the screen, here's your three options. Whoa, what happened? Either A, the person was never blind to begin with, and he's a good actor. Or B, we have the wrong person. This looks just like the guy who used to stand and was blind. Or C, you have to concede, we have an amazing Miracle, And so they want to find out more. So they bring him to the Pharisees. Now, guys, if this was acted out on a stage, this would definitely be a comedy, all right? Um, I believe the next little section of Scripture is one of the funniest scenes in our Bibles. 
Notice what happens next, our second section. We have open eyes with this man, but we still have blind hearts. Look at verse 13. They brought him who formerly was blind. For you today, there's a formerly. You formerly were, whatever, fill in the blank. He formerly was blind. They brought him to the Pharisees. Now, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is, speaking of Jesus, he's not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. Now, listen, church, if I can have your attention, this is absurd. They're saying Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath. Did you notice that Jesus spat on the ground earlier and then made the mud out of the clay with the saliva? They're all stressed out about the fact that it was on the Sabbath. They didn't care what he did. It was when he did it. Verse 14 tells us it was a Sabbath when Jesus performed this. Now, one of the categories of work specifically forbidden on the Sabbath day was, according to the traditional interpretation of the law, was kneading. You were not to do any kneading. Okay, no kneading on the Sabbath. And apparently making mud or clay, uh, mud from clay with saliva, was somehow construed by the Pharisees as a type of kneading. And so they're going to grill this guy with questions now, and they're really, they're really kind of bringing division. Um, rather than praising God on his behalf, because they knew him, uh, they're going to berate him uh, for allowing, I guess, Jesus to heal him. They had walked past this man every day for the past 20 years or so. But their blindness is causing them to miss what's right in front of them. So notice verse 17. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? Like, where, where do you land? Where do you land? And I've talked about this recently. All of us need to be able to say something about Jesus. Where do you land today, young man, uh, young woman, older uh, person here today? Where do you land today on who Jesus is? What do you say about him? And here's the man's response. He is a prophet. He's a prophet. But, verse 18, the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Okay, guys, track with me a little bit. Remember uh, just a minute ago when I said when faced with a miracle, you have three options. Let's see those again. Okay, which one did the Pharisees go for? Which one are they going for? Yell it out for me, A, B, or C? They're going with B. They're going with B. Okay, it's okay. You guys still get extra credit. Uh, they're choosing B. They're thinking, we've got the wrong person, so let's get the guy's parents to speak for him and confirm this. So verse 20, his parents answered them and said, oh yeah, we know this is our son, that he was born blind by... But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Yes, they do. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Yes, you do. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. This is the ultimate um, non-power move. Okay, their, uh, their, power move uh, their power game is very weak on this one. Okay, verse 22. His parents said these things. Why? Because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, well, he's of age. Ask him. I mean, talk about wimping out. They had an opportunity to defend their son. 
They care more about their stature and status in the community than about coming to the, um, to the aid of their son. Uh, the parent's heart is divided here. On the one hand, they're excited that their son has been healed. This is great news, both for his sake and for their sake, right? The monkey's off their back now. No one's going to say, oh, yeah, you guys sin. The monkey's off the back. But on the other hand, Jesus heals their son on the Sabbath. And now if they look like their allegiance is with Jesus, now they're going to have a whole new set of problems. They're going to be banned from the synagogue. And listen, to be excommunicated from the synagogue was a big deal. Uh, a commentator named Dodds wrote about this practice. He said this, of excommunication, there were three degrees. The first degree lasted 30 days and then followed a second admonition. And if impenitent, the culprit was punished for 30 days more, another month. And if still impenitent, he was laid under the carom or ban, which was of indefinite duration and which entirely cut him off from others. He was treated as if he were a leper. You know what a leper is. You don't touch that person. You stay away from that person. That's how you were treated if you were excommunicated from the synagogue. Now, I believe in church discipline, and we as a church believe in church discipline. Uh, but let's be honest, church discipline today isn't what it used to be. David Gusick pointed this out. He says, in the modern Western world, the idea of excommunication means little because it's easy for the excommunicated one to simply go to another church and pretend that nothing happened. More commonly today is what we might call self-excommunication, where believers separate themselves from church worship and life with no good reason. Many of the rulers in Jerusalem, according to John 12, 42, believed in Jesus, but they were afraid to say it because they didn't want to be cast out of the synagogue. They're afraid. And so rather than answer directly, the parents become, we've used this phrase a lot, PC. You guys know what PC stands for? Politically correct. I don't want to say something to offend. I don't want to get in trouble. I want to make sure everyone's cool with me. So I'm going to say something that doesn't get me in trouble. Politically correct. Church, are we to be politically correct today? Can we get a little louder than that? Are we to be politically correct? No, we are not. We're to speak the truth. Speak it in love, but speak the truth. Okay? And so they're like, yep. Yep, that's our son. He can speak for himself. Come on, Johnny, talk. Right? So now it's about to get really comedic. Look at this third section. We're not going to make much comment. We're just going to read through it. The blind leading the blind. We're going to see the blind man leading the Pharisees in a theological Bible college class. I love this. Look at verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that Jesus, this man, is a sinner. The blind man answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> Don't you love this? One of the best arguments in postmodern culture that uh, Christians can present, because people believe truth is relative, one of the best arguments we can give is our testimony. You can't argue against that. We can argue absolute truth. You can't say Jesus hasn't changed me. And so I, I say, share your testimony. Uh, and so look at verse 26. They said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And apparently he had already told them, well, you know, he spit. And, and so verse 27, I told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? You've got to love this guy. Man. I want to meet this guy in heaven. And you go up to him like, dude, you're amazing. And verse 28, then they reviled him, of course, and they said, you are his disciple. But we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. 
<laughs> this is the best part. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who is born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. <laughs> Don't you love this? He's like, hey guys, let's start in Genesis chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to kind of teach you today. Uh, and so they answered, verse 34, and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us? And then they cast him out. They didn't just push him out of the room. They cast him out of the synagogue. He was excommunicated from their gathering. But I think this is awesome. He gives them a lesson in theology. A previously blind man leading a bunch of blind men. And so they cast him out. They excommunicate him from self, listen, from self-righteous religion because he had had an encounter with Jesus. But he's not truly seen yet. The Jews are still unable to see, but this blind man is about to have his spiritual eyes, his blind heart open. And that's our fourth and final section this morning. Look at verse 35 through 41. The blind heart open. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, again, he had found him twice now in this chapter. When he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Obviously, he's saying, yes, now show me who he is. And Jesus said to him, verse 37, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. You could just hear Jesus maybe saying, I am. And then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. In the scriptures, we have angels. When people accidentally worship them, the angels say, no, 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 don't, don't worship me. That worship is reserved for God alone. And here we see a man worshipping another man. It's not just a man, it's Jesus. He is the Lord. He is our Savior. He is deity. And so Jesus doesn't stop him. He receives the worship. And then says in verse 39, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, if you Pharisees would admit your spiritual blindness... You would be forgiven. You'd be set free from your sin. But because you say, no, I've got it all together. I, I can see fine. I'm, I'm perfect. Then your sin remains. One pastor named Bruce said this, to be so self-deceived as to shut one's eyes to the light is a desperate state to be in. The light is there. But if people refuse to avail themselves of it, but rather deliberately reject it, how can they be enlightened? As Jesus said, their sin remains. Now, I didn't come up with this next list, but this is really cool. Check it, check it out on the screen. Notice how the formerly blind man showed an increasing awareness of Jesus. This is really cool. I can't take credit for it. Uh, but he starts in verse 11 saying, yeah, Jesus is a man. Then it goes deeper. He's a prophet, verse 17. Now he's my master, or they're saying that he's following Jesus as a disciple. Verse 33, he says he's from God. Now he's the son of God. Now he's the one I trust, and he's the one. I worship. Isn't this awesome? This man is forever changed and went from a beggar to a worshiper in one moment. The blind man to one truly seen after a miraculous touch from Jesus. J. Vernon McGee says that the lack of sight does not mean that light is not there. Light reveals the condition of the eye. 
The light of the world reveals the condition of the soul. The Pharisees thought they saw, but they were blind. I wonder this morning, in a group this size, if you're here and you, in, in a false way, believe that by attending church or by being raised in a Christian home or being an American or voting a certain way, that you are now saved, that you are born again, that you're a Christian. I wonder, I fear that in a group this size, you may have a false sense of security. And so I want to close today with three important points. If you're taking note, and if we could minimize the, the, the getting up and the walking around, I really want us to focus on this, these closing points. Number one, we are the blind beggar. You and I, in our sinful condition, blind from birth, have no way to remedy our plight this morning. We can make excuses, we can blame others, we can blame our parents, we can blame ourselves, and then at the end of the day, what are we going to do? We're going to squat and try to take as much from the world as we can to get by. We may even convince ourselves that life isn't that bad. Yeah, it's fine, while we mope around in utter darkness. Like the blind beggar without Christ, we are helpless. We are living in darkness. Uh, we can't see even if we try. There's nothing that man could do, nor that we can do, to remedy or better our situation, but we can't ignore our situation. And without Jesus, there's no chance of seeing light. The only valid solution is to blame or to beg. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and in Ephesians chapter 4.18, uh, described our condition before being granted spiritual sight. He said, having their understanding darkened, and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That word hardening is also translated blindness. Due to the blindness of their heart, the hardening of their heart. You see, when Jesus does a miraculous work of creation in our lives, regenerating us by his spirit, our lives are forever changed. Amen? They're changed. One more point I want to make this morning is for some of us who have been suffering like this man. And that is that number three, suffering reveals God's glory in our life. What seems like calamity can actually be a catalyst in our life. The man was born blind. It wasn't anyone's particular sin that led to his blindness. Jesus said that. The father allowed this disability, listen, to occur as he was being formed in his mother's womb, sovereignly ordaining the exact day when he would be sitting, begging, and then encounter Jesus, who would display God's glory in and through his life. Every difficulty that you and I experience in life, it's either an opportunity or it's an obstacle. Um, some, I don't know if this is true, but some have said the Chinese symbol for the word crisis is actually two symbols, one for the word danger, and one for the word opportunity. And many of us view our crisis, our present crises, uh, as one or the other. It's either an obstacle uh, that's in the way or it's an opportunity for the Lord to display his glory in and through our lives. We need to learn to look at our difficulties and not weigh the temporary trial, but look for the weight of God's glory. A pastor by the name of John Corson said this, and I'll tell you why this is impacting later. He said, misery always opens the door for ministry. If you're going through difficulty, tragedy, sickness, 
or a hard time. Be careful that you don't become introspective and wonder what you've done wrong to deserve it. The question is not who caused the misery. The question is, will you allow me to use it? Will you allow me to demonstrate my glory through it in order that a blind world might see my reality and be made whole? I tell you that's impacting because Pastor John Corson wrote that and lost both his wife and his daughter uh, in car accidents in the same spot in um, the Pacific Northwest years apart. And he could say, misery will open the door for ministry, even losing a wife and a daughter. Suffering, church, is a result of sin, but God can bring glory to himself because it's, it's sin that began in the, in the beginning. Uh, and he can bring glory to himself through any trial, through any tragedy, through any trauma. And he'll glorify himself on the day of redemption when sin and death and hell are forever vanquished in his conquering kingdom. Don't you look forward to that day? When we sing hymns like we did earlier, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, doesn't that invoke some type of excitement from you that one day we're going to be with him and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. We're going to be with the Lord and faith will become sight. We will see Jesus in all of his resplendent glory. He'll look like uh, Revelation chapter 1 with white hair. He's pierced. Uh, he has a name tattooed on his thigh. Uh, this is, he's got fire in his eyes. His tongue is a sword. My son Aiden loved that when he was eight. He's like, Jesus has a sword for a tongue that is awesome. And man, and, and he is gonna, he's gonna be wearing white to a fight. Uh, this, is, this is Jesus. He uh, has his robe um, soaked in blood, the blood of his enemies. And man, I can't wait for that day when I look upon him. And faith becomes sight. Can't you? It's exciting. And so as we close today, I want to invite the band forward, and we're going to close in song. And I want us to do this. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. And I want, just for a minute, for you to experience what it's like to be physically blind. Just for a moment. Close your eyes. My pastor's challenge for us this morning, with your eyes closed right now, can you truly see? Can you truly see? I want to ask you, invite you to ask God to open the eyes of your heart. That's not a poetic term. What I mean by that is that God would, would open up your spiritual eyes to see, that he would enlighten you. There's a pastor, while our eyes are closed, there's a pastor in the 1800s visiting an unbeliever. And the unbeliever told the pastor, I don't need your spiritual light. I have the light of nature. That's all I need. Well, the pastor left and said, I'll pray for you. And the unbeliever was upstairs. His servant said, hey, before you go downstairs, here is a candle. And the man said, I have the light of the moon. That's all I need. And then he tumbled down the steps in darkness. It's a true story. You and I may be in that condition. See, I was in that condition before I knew Jesus. But he sovereignly, graciously reached out, saw while I was yet a sinner, he died for me, and he allowed me to see. Today, that may be you, trusting in your own righteousness, your own ingenuity, your own good works for salvation, or you're content to stay in your feeble, hopeless condition, when right in front of you, the hope you've always longed for stands ready and willing to save. Maybe you've let a tragedy cause you to become bitter or angry towards God, rather than realizing the question is not who's responsible, but the question is, how will God bring glory to himself through this pain? Are you here this morning and you want your 
darkened eyes spiritually opened for the first time to know Jesus? Would you raise your hand? Would you raise your hand? Last week we had a woman who's in her 70s, being in church for decades and decades. She said, I've been in church for years and years. I said, but now, you may have been in church for years and years, but now you're in Christ. Is there anyone here this morning, you wanna be in Christ, you wanna know Jesus, and you wanna acknowledge him publicly for the first time in a gathering like this, raise your hand. You wanna know Jesus. I believe there's a hand in the back that went up. Your hand go up. Would you stand to your feet, brother? There's a young man who's acknowledging Jesus. He wants his spiritual eyes open. Is there anyone else this morning? God's doing a work. And I wanna pray for him and I wanna pray for all of us as a church. As one man said, Robert Louis Stevenson, saw a man lighting the street with lanterns. And a young girl came in and said, what are you watching? He said, I'm watching a man cut holes in the darkness. That's what we're doing, church. As the gospel goes out, we're cutting light in the darkness. And so may we look to Jesus, even when the gospels veil, that the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine. And so let's pray for this young man who has stood to his feet to know Jesus. Father, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection and that Jesus is risen indeed today. We place our faith not in our good works. These are filthy rags. We renounce them and we place our faith in the finished work of Christ at Calvary on the cross on our behalf. We pray for this young man who has made a public profession of faith to know Jesus. Lord, thank you for saving him. Thank you for faith. Lord, we pray that you would make him new this morning and give him eyes that see for the first time. We all want to know you and we all want to cut holes in the darkness. So may we proclaim the gospel to a dying and dark and blind world. It's in Christ's name, together the church prays. And we all said, amen. Amen, let's worship together. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. For more content, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com. Make sure to tune in next time as we continue our study through the Gospel of John in the series, I Am.